Welcome to this uh, Professional Practices Alliance webinar. It feels like the title is a bit of a portent of doom, um, but it's will firms run out of cash and what should they do about it? And it is a very live question, um, as we'll all go through in a minute. So we're, we're hoping to just take you through some of the um, cash flow implications of what's coming up and then give you some practical ideas about uh, how you can plan for it. For those who don't know, the Professional Practices Alliance is a multidisciplinary collaboration between advisors to the professional practices sector on um, partnership and employment law, partner remuneration, tax, accountancy and strategic and various compliance issues. Um, as it said, we'll be recording the session. Do put questions in the in the chat box um, and we'll try and get to as many of those as we can during the session. And if we don't manage to, then we'll follow up after it. Um, I, I suggest you put yourselves on mute, but have videos on or off as, as you like. It's quite nice to see some faces, but um, but as you like. Um, right, so let me um, introduce our panel today. We have, uh, first of all, we have James Curry, who is a colleague of mine. He's a senior tax manager at Buzzacott, and he's a chartered tax advisor who specializes in both corporate and partnership tax. He looks after tax affairs of partners in partnerships, including newly appointed and exiting partners and helps them to forecast and, and basically mitigate their, their tax liabilities. Then we have Sulon Begum, who is a partner and head of non-contentious partnership practice at CM Murray LLP. And Zulon advises professional practices in various sectors with a focus on structural issues, partnership agreements, investigations, regulatory matters and succession planning. Then we have uh, Rob Millard, who is the founder of Cambridge Strategy Group, which he founded in 2012 with a focus mainly on law firms, both large international and smaller UK practices. And he advises on business management practices and managing change and developing new strategies. And then we have Corin Saves, who is partner and head of professional practices at Morris Turner Gardner, um, who advises partners and partnerships on regulatory and governance matters. Um, and for her sins, she's MTG's CULP, I believe, as well as team moves, transac uh, transactions, and a, very, a variety of uh, restructuring issues. And my name's Claire Watkins, and I head up the professional practices team at Buzzacott. And then behind the scenes, we have Daniela Bran from CM Murray, who is uh, CM Murray's marketing uh, expert, and she masterminds all these Zoom webinars and basically keeps it all, keeps it all flowing. So today's session, um, we, we sort of came up with the idea fairly last minute, really, in a, in a chat among the group, just to sort of see what we were going to talk about for the next few sessions. And it feels like the catalyst for today's session is the very recent Treasury announcement that the rules around the taxation of self-employed businesses are about to undergo a change in a fairly short space of time. And that because this will affect the timing of uh, tax payments, it'll have a knock-on effect on cash flow. And then in addition to that, and more imminently than that, there's going to be a 1.25% increase, 1.25% increase, that is, on national insurances, plural. And so we're going to explore the cash implications of all that and the wider structural and generational implications on partnerships and, and LLPs. So that's setting the scene a bit. I'm going to put the first question to James. Um, James, for anyone who became a partner in a partnership in which the financial year end is other than the 31st of March or the 5th of April, their tax will have been very, well, lumpy in the first year or more, and they'll have become familiar with the term overlap profits. Now, I know that this is rather like asking somebody to explain the offside rule in football, but do you think you can explain as briefly and clearly as you can 
Um, just what overlap profits mean, the current rules for how partners in a partnership or LLP are taxed now and how overlap profits accrue so that we can then move on and see how things might change. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Claire. Um, so sorry for some uh, tax first thing in the morning, but hopefully you've got your coffee um, and this will keep you going. Um, so for partners who are existing in partnership and have been a partner, for a number of years, you're taxed on what's known as a current year basis. So that looks at a 12 month period, which is aligned to the firm's accounting period. So if your firm, for example, is 30th of April, your profit is driven by the accounts of 30th of April, and you're currently completing your 2020-21 tax returns. So that would be your profits for the 12 months to 30th of April 20 and your tax payments are driven from there and you're probably used to paying tax on 31st of July and 31 January. Now as Claire mentioned where the firm's tax year is where the firm's accounting year is not the same as the tax year there are special rules for new partners known as basis periods and what this leads to is in the second and potentially the third year, you're taxed on the same profits twice, which gives rise to the term overlap profits. And this is carried forward on your tax return each year as you're a partner. There's no increase for inflation and you will subsequently receive the relief for your overlap profits when you retire or leave the firm or the firm changes its year end in more rare circumstances. So that's where Claire alluded to of this lumpiness that you might experience in the first year as when you become a partner. But thereafter, you continue to be taxed on 12 months of profits in line with the accounting year for the firm. A question that we often receive is, from new partners is, and we see a common year end of 30th of April, why do firms choose 30th of April and not 31st of March, which avoids the overlap profit problem? And the reason is cash. By having a 30th of April year end, you defer the payments of cash by almost up to 11 months. So the finance directors, equity partners often will find this attractive when setting up firms. And that's what gives rise to this overlap profit. Uh, sorry. Sorry, you're passing back to me, are you? Hold on a second. I've got myself in a mess here. Here we are. Right. Um, okay. So that that makes that as clear as we can possibly make it. I think. Now, James, um, the proposal that's been allowed, uh, that's been announced. Can you just set the scene? Does it does it come out of the blue, or did we have an idea it was on its way? And and you and I were chatting just recently. There have been various changes and further announcements of things. Can you just bring us up to speed on what where we are with it all? So. The consultation was first launched on the in, in 20th of July during just as everyone's breaking up for summer. So it's almost there going under the radar without anybody being able to pay due attention to it with the consultation period closing on 31st of August. So conveniently released by the Treasury over the summer holidays. Um, it, 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 has, it was released as somewhat of a surprise, although in the background we've had Making Tax Digital, which was obviously first announced five or six years ago. And the way that self-employed individuals 
of partnerships and how a partnership would be reporting under making tax digital has not been made clear and has always just been pushed back further and further down the line. So under the consultation that was released in July, it's they're proposed, the Treasury is proposing to move from this current year basis where you're taxed on 12 months of profit in line with the accounting period to a tax year basis. So for firms where the year end is 31 March or 5th of April, that's no problem. You carry on as you were. However, if you have a, a year end that differs from the tax year, for example, the 30th of April, 30th of June or 31 December, the current uh, popular year ends that we see, these changes will affect you. And the introduction was going to happen with effect from 6th of April, 23. And this would involve a transition year starting on 6th of April, 22, which is, would have been less than six months away to give firms time to prepare for these changes. However, the professional bodies, which included the Institute of Chartered Accountants for England and Wales, the Chartered Institute of Tax and the Law Society, they all wrote to the Treasury to outline their concerns with these proposals and them being rushed in in what is a very complicated area. And this has all been driven by the Office of Tax Simplification. And there's many arguments that we're not simplifying, but we're adding further complexity to what's already a very complex area of tax. So a couple of weeks ago, the Treasury came out and announced that there would be a delay of at least 12 months, and it won't be introduced any earlier than 6th of April 24, with the transition year starting in 6th of April 23. And so what does the transition year actually mean? It means it needs to bring every, all partners of professional practices and partnerships onto a tax year basis. So you will have in this year, your 12 months of profit, for example, up to 30th of April. You will then have the profit from 1st of May to 5th of April, which is essentially a further 11 months, less your overlap relief to be knocked off from when you were first made a partner. Now, for partners that have been in a, part a partner for a long time, their overlap relief is likely to be fairly modest in comparison to what they might be earning as an equity partner. So although their profits stay, look similar year on year when looking at the accounts, it's going to create this spike and it's going to create an additional tax which have a knock-on effect onto their cash flow and the timing of tax payments. So this is something to be aware of for future planning. We don't know, this is all still proposal. The Treasury has issued draft legislation at the same time as the consultation, which would indicate that these changes are going to be introduced, but we don't know when. So we have the budget on two weeks today, um, and so we'll be watching this very closely to see what's announced in the budget in terms of timing of the basis period reform. But things to think about in advance of these changes and what firms can do to prepare is ensuring that they're finalising their accounts and tax computations as early as possible. And they may want to start modelling the cash flow implications of looking at what the their, profit, their profits for tax purposes are going to look like in this transition year to plan for the tax payments which are going to fall. Another option that they might want to look at is, and we've had discussions with firms about this, is changing the year end to 31st of March. 
and there are wider impacts that other than tax just to be thinking about when changing your year end so there is a lot to think about um, and the treasury accepts that the transition year could create additional tax and one option laid out in the consultation is the election to spread the additional profits over a period of five years so this will help to manage the cash flow but we do run the risk of it's the additional profit that's being spread not the tax so if we see an increase in rates in the coming years it could expose you to a higher rate of tax on that additional profit than what otherwise would be due and conveniently or if being too cynical this is being in, introduced with the increase in or an increase in national insurance contributions with the health and social care levy so the government will be receiving more cash and um, we'll discuss the impact of the health and social care levy later Lovely. Thanks, James. Yes, as James has just said, um, one of the implications of this, although you don't have to, you won't have to change your year end. I think in most cases, firms are going to want to change their year end back to the 31st of March or I suppose the 5th of April, because then you, you're tying up your financial year end with the tax year end and it just makes it easier to manage things in house. We're in the same boat. Buzzacod has a 30, 30th of September year end and nobody can remember why. And I think it's probably been on the agenda for years that why on earth have we got this um, this quite unusual year-end date, and should we should we change it? But this is probably something that we're going to have to think about uh, more now, because um, if these changes do come in, then it would make sense to align the financial year-end with the tax year-end, although not essential. Now, with that in well, mind, on that, sorry to, to sorry, jump yeah, in, on, but it, it just struck me, and I should have mentioned this in our planning discussions. But we mustn't forget that there's limited opportunities for for LLPs, for example, to change their accounting reference dates in the sense that you can only do it, I think, from memory once every five years, unless there are truly exceptional circumstances. So, fine for Buzzacott that have forgotten why they had a 30 year, 30th of September year end because they haven't changed it for a while. But for sort of newer firms that might have changed their accounting reference dates sort of immediately after incorporation, or, or just change it for, for operational reasons they might find that they don't have that luxury of choice unless we get clarity on whether or not this is exceptional enough to justify a second change within five years yes that's a very good point there are rules you can't just change it on a whim you have to if you have been changing your year end in the past you have to make sure you're, you're following the rules um, we thought we, we love a poll when we're doing these um, professional practices alliance webinars so we thought we would just see from the audience there's a poll coming up please only fill this in if you are in a partnership an llp or you happen to be a self-employed um, sole trader if you're a bank or if you're a limited company please don't fill it in and i shall do the same it'd just be interesting to see <clears throat> and we'll just wait a couple of seconds and see what comes up Danielle is just doing all the behind the scenes stuff. We, we tend to find in Buzzacott actually that most of our clients have a 31 March or 30th of April year end, not too many that have other year ends. And let's see what comes up. There we go. So oh, there we go. So 50% 30th of April, 27% already the 30, 31st of March. No, don't knows. Well, that's good. <laughs> Glad you all know. And other, yeah, so there's a good proportion of them, the majority that are not 31st of March year end, then in that case. So it is something that uh, firms are going to want to consider. Right, let's move on then. So um, 
Rob and, and actually Corinne as well, if the basis period reform does go through, uh, this will have an effect on cash and therefore it'll have an effect on the way firms capitalise themselves. I wonder whether you could talk through the way firms might want to address um, how to recapitalise themselves. Yeah, thank, thanks, Claire. Uh, I thought the best way to do this would be to give a preview of some research we did about two months ago on on law, uh, law firm capitalization. It, it's not; it wasn't triggered by this particular issue. It was just looking in general at how firms uh, are capitalizing themselves. So, if you can bear with me for a second, um, I think it's disappeared down there. And if I do that, are you able to see that now? Yes, that's perfect. Good. Okay, so there's the answer to the question. There are 43 firms here. One of them is publicly listed. The rest are all partnerships, and they're all law firms. Apologies to other professionals on this call, but we only looked at law firms for this particular research. So how is the firm capitalized? The vast majority are either 100% capitalized by partners or shareholders or more than 75%. So this is an issue that is, is of direct, direct uh, uh, um, in, interest to, to, to the partners. Very few, though, it's interesting to look at. There is a small number that, uh, that are heavily leveraged. And uh, that is interesting, as you'll see in the next slide, which is, all right, so what sources of funding has your firm used over the past few years? Uh, and partner equity funding everybody's got. And other besides that, it's revolving credit facilities and overdrafts, and then a smattering of other things. A few firms using litigation funding and others, all sorts of all sorts of methods. What's more interesting is the question that we asked about what do you think you're going to be using in the next three to five years? Uh, and basically, uh, the, the key is up on the bottom on, on the top left there. The more red you see, the less likely it is perceived to be. But uh, just look at the green. So uh, where things are, uh, the various um, uh, funding solutions are, are, are seen to be likely or highly likely, it's almost all revolving credit, increasing that, increasing overdraft or increasing uh, partner equity. A little bit if you go down to the bottom, the litigation funding. But they, there are a number of firms that, that completed the survey that seem to be looking for every source of funding uh, possible. Uh, you know perhaps not selling the furniture, but, but uh, looking at everything else. <clears throat> so the next question we asked was, uh, how does the firm assist partners in making up their equity capital? And um, well, you can see the answer there, uh, the, 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 uh, I, either through deduction of drawings or no assistance made. There are a small number of firms that have an understanding with a bank, they don't provide sureties, very small minority that provide sureties. But basically, it's up to the partners. And, and how much do law firms or, or professional partnerships really know about their partners' finances? Um, what happens if you have a discussion about uh, increasing the, 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 the partner capital? And that's a real problem. I mean, we, we've got interest rates going up. We've got inflation. We've got, uh, we've got all sorts of pressures in the market. Uh, not just from this, but generally, and uh, so, uh, a partner who is living life to the hilt of the income is probably going to battle. Um, so the last question that I want to put to you today, it's not the last question in the research, but it's the last that's relevant here, is so what measures do the firm's funders require to secure their loans? 
and a third roughly said none, um, unsecured. Uh, and then the rest, interesting, interesting spread. Uh, covenants are quite common. Uh, very small number of, 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 of firms that own their properties use that as, as um, security. And um, partner personal guarantees in a significant number of cases as well. So, I mean, this is really, this is, this, this is about change in the external environment, to use the strategic term. It's about how resilient is the firm to not so anti-fragility, if you want to use the latest jargon. And, and how can the firm just make itself more resilient to this pressure on cash flow? Thanks. That's, Sorry, Rob. That's all. I, I'm stopping sharing. <laughs> there okay. <you> go. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Yeah, I think that the, the uh, penultimate slide is interesting with the, it rings bells when I'm talking to partnerships where they're really trying to fund the capital of new partners. And it seems to be even more of a problem these days, gradually getting worse. Um, because, you know, everybody's using their cash to buy houses and, mm. you know, things that are vastly more expensive these days. So that was a huge chunk of the pie anyway that you showed on the screen just then. But I think it, it looks like it's going to need to be funded even more. Um, Corinne, can we transfer over to you and, and comment on on the same topic? Y yes, of course. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Claire. There's this real tension in terms of newer partners coming in. Um, often at the fixed share level at the outset at the very least, uh, and those partners that have been partners for a long time. I think I would, I would encourage firms to think about how to manage that, because the likelihood is that the, the capital is going to be borrowed at the outset, particularly now with the salaried members rules, that that is a, a really substantial sum of capital. It's not like you put £5,000 in, it's going to be in the measure of £30,000, £40,000, £50,000 for, for people who are <laughs> probably still paying off student debt and buying their first house. So you, you can absolutely see why it needs to be borrowed. Um, one of the questions that we quite often ask firms to consider is, do or should partners have an obligation to repay that capital? Um, for example, if as you sort of move up through the firm, you take a little bit of your uh, drawings each year and um, repay that over time. So effectively, your kind of borrowed capital is reduced, you repay the bank. Uh, that serves two purposes. Um, one, possibly a little paternalistic. When you leave, you've got a nice sort of chunk of capital, which is personal capital. So that's a nice little extra when, when you can't really make pensions provisions if you're a high earner properly. Um, and, and the second one, I think, and probably the most relevant to this conversation, is it's likely to free up headroom on the partner loan facility the bank's prepared to offer. So either there will be a finite sum that the bank is prepared to offer, um, and therefore you can't bring in new partners if the older partners who have been there, so old in the sense of have been there the longest, uh, have used up that facility. Uh, but even if the, part, the bank will lend, the, the likelihood is that the cost of that uh, facility will, will be a, a burden and, and who bears that burden is, is a great question. So we do sort of encourage firms to think about that. And if those sums are being paid by sort of profits, end of year profits, people don't feel it, it, it don't feel it really because it's just a little bit less of the sort of end of year profits coming out. Um, so I think that's quite a, a sensible idea, but you've got to achieve fairness as between people because obviously people value value money and recognise the value of money in their own hands. Um, the, the other thing I would say is there's that question about, you know, do, do you bring in partners to create capital? And, and I would say that's 
probably quite a, a blunt instrument because if capital is your problem, then more partners is not going to, to solve it. And, and really, are you going to attract the right sorts of partners? Um, but but it, is, it is a good question. Do you look to your partner base? Do you say, right, OK, we have a whole bunch of salaried partners. Let's make them fixed share partners. And there are some candidate firms for that in the sense of those firms who are sort of perhaps a really tightly controlled equity cohort, a very small group of equity partners um, with lots of salaried partners. There is an argument for saying, well, let's make all those people fixed share partners, LLP members. And, and, and James, I'm sure, has observations on, on national insurance and all those sorts of points. It, it could be quite a good move and it could actually be quite a good succession plan in terms of incentivizing the next generation to sort of start to build up and, and give them a path towards equity. But, but I think one of the challenges we see there is we're working out what terms those those fixed share partners are entitled to number one and number two the the appetite that the equity partners have for that because um typically there's some resistance to, to change when those sorts of points are raised thanks corin zulo can we bring you in on this because um you advise on on, on this sort of thing all the time and i think there's a there's a sort of um expectation that if you ask a partner a salaried partner to become a fixed share partner or an equity partner and and then say oh by the way you've also got to bring in some capital that they're going to jump at the chance and think oh yeah that's that's what I want to do give up all my employment rights and put some risk into the into my life um could you comment on how how you see the implications of bringing in a tier of fixed share partners or indeed new equity partners yes I, I think um Corinne mentioned mentioned the appetite of equity partners to bring in a, a fixed share tier but there's it also goes the other way the appetite of potential FSPs to become members of the LLP if they are giving up certain rights as a result of that. So the obvious things are um, their secure employment rights where they have you know, certain you know, rights against unfair dismissal and things like that. And so how can you make it attractive um, for those people to come into the, a membership of the LLP, have more risk in the business because obviously they'll have to contribute capital if they're going to meet the salaried member tests um, which I'm sure James can talk about, but you know they have to fail one of the three conditions um, under the salaried member test in order to qualify um, to, as being self-employed for tax purposes. And most often you'd see um, the fixed share tier uh, really only qualifying to, uh, to be self-employed under, uh, under condition C of the salaried member rules, um, in effect providing at least 25% of their fixed remuneration as capital to the business and as, as Corinne said that can be quite significant so making that jump from secure employment um, contractual relationship with the firm to a more slightly risky riskier proposition but with potential upsides hopefully it is it has to be managed in a way that makes it attractive to the, to that tier so um, typically um, FSPs potential FSPs will be looking at what do they get in return for for the extra risk that they're going to take. So are they going to get a share of the equity profits? And sometimes you do get, um, in addition to FSPs having a fixed share of the profits, um, a small share of the equity as well, if, if the firm does well, or some kind of bonus pool. Um, do they get any say in the governance of the firm? Um, they're unlikely to meet the significant influence test. Um, uh, we often see um, at the FSP tier only having uh, uh, right to vote on, on fairly uh, run of the mill things like approving the annual accounts um, and kind of a, the more day to day running of the firm is mainly managed by the equity partners and significant decisions like 
Um, agreeing a merger, for example, is again, tends to be things that the equity partners um, uh, kind of hold the voting rights on. So looking at your con constitution and figuring out if you're going to bring in this new tier of partnership, what exactly are you going to give them in return for that risk that they're going to take in terms of governance? Um, what are their profit sharing rights going to look like? And how do they effectively move up the rung um, from uh, FSP to equity? Because again, that's going to be the other thing that the, those potential FSPs are going to be looking at. What is their future within the firm? Yeah, that, you mentioned the significant influence argument as um, another way of satisfying the salaried members rules without having to necessarily put in capital. That That is a topic that we ought to explore in the future because I think I'm seeing a bit more of that from my client base now. It's probably because, I mean, I haven't sort of scientifically analysed it, but it, it might be because um, raising the capital is a problem for some and even the firm funding the capital for that partner, it can be a problem. So exploring significant influence and to what extent that can be relied upon is probably something we could do for a future future topic anyway um look let's move on um rob actually on this on the similar subject there's this problem with sort of generational change and senior members wanting to be fixed share partners can you can you comment from your perspective on how you see that working senior members wanting to be fixed share partners um do you mean as in, in the uh, the run up to a retirement or? Well, just bringing in a senior, bringing in the tier of senior staff into either fixed share partners or equity partners and how it's viewed from, I mean, Zulon's talked about some of it, how it's viewed from the equity partner side of things and um, whether you think it's something that happens, can happen easily. Senior staff certainly, and 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 uh, I mean we saw that with the, at the advent of the, the the Legal Services Act in two thousand and seven. The surveys that were done back then, one of the big things that firms said that we're going to do instantly was make their uh, C level uh, staff into partners. Uh, that hasn't happened. To, to and 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 uh, interesting to speculate as to why. Uh, but but uh, to to the extent that was expected, I mean. But what we are seeing is 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 partner proxies being created, where they've got the same sort of rights within the firm, but they they're not actually partners. So this wouldn't still still being salaried employees uh, with generous bonus structures. One would not imagine that this really applies to them. But um, those that have become partners uh, in, in uh, ABS's alternative business structures, uh, it, it would be an issue. Thanks, Rob. Yes, I realised I said senior members. I meant senior staff. You, you understood the question that I hadn't quite posed correctly. Um, now, all this leads into another cash flow impact, which is arguably more imminent, which is the increase to national insurances, plural. I'll go back to James on this. It's very much your um your area of expertise can you talk us through the increases and when they're likely to take place and then we'll, we'll talk about how to how to cope with that sort of cash strain yeah sure so um very recently it was announced that um a new health and social care levy was being introduced by the government on income with the aim of raising 12 billion pounds per year to help fund um health social care and the nhs in a quite rare announcement, this change was confirmed before the budget. Um, so that came as a slight surprise, but we know the government has got to raise a lot of money after the events of the past 18 months. And they're quite restricted in the way that they can do this and so effectively. 
Um, I read that two thirds of the government's uh, tax revenue comes from income tax, national insurance contributions, and VAT. So by modifying CGT or IHT, it's not going to have that much effect. And income tax is not a popular tax to raise. So we're left with national insurance contributions or VAT. VAT can be seen as regressive. And national insurance contributions is one that is less under the microscope. People don't always understand it. And there's also, we feel like we're paying towards something with national insurance contributions that it's going towards either our state pension or to towards our health and social care. So in a way, it's less unpopular with voters due to its misunderstanding concerning the nature of the tax. Uh, you're welcome to disagree, but I think uh, that's what it might be seen as. And what's hidden in there is that we hear that the, the, this new levy is going to be 1.25% on income. Now, this is also uh, payable by employers on salaries. So the actual raise is going to be 2.5%. And this is why we're able to raise as much as we can. And it's almost quite clever from the government that it sounds like 1.25%, but we get 2.5% overall. Um, and there was something in the media yesterday saying that to raise the, the funds needed to uh, meet the funding gap, it, will, it could increase up to 3.15% in the next five years. So we can wait and see what happens with this raise. One point to note is that it also the health and social care levy will apply to dividends and it will also apply to earnings for those above state pension age, unlike national insurance contributions. And what this leads to for income and what's supposed to be a simple, uh, a simple system of people having a job and then being taxed, they're going to be subject to income tax, national insurance contributions and health and, so health and social care levy. So again, where we've been having our Office of Tax Simplification trying to simplify matters, we're adding another layer of complexity into what's affecting a lot of people and it leads to more confusion. We may recall, uh, I think it's around five years ago, a review was launched by the Office of Tax Simplification to review the merger of income tax and national insurance contributions. That was put to one side and whether there's a chance that we see this review being relaunched given the complexity that's going to be introduced we don't know but the new health and social care levy is going to be introduced from 6th of April 22 and again we wait for the budget in two weeks time to see if there's going to be any further announcements to tax rises um, we're unsure if anything has been or will be confirmed um, but there is a lot of funding to to be met given the coronavirus support measures launched by the government in the past 18 months. Um, so yeah, 6th of April 2022 is the date that's coming in. Um, and with inflation going up, again, it could be people worse off. 
Well, that's a lovely sunny message. Thank you for that, James. <laughs> um, listen, what I'm going to propose to do is, James, there's a question that's come through on the chat box that falls into your uh, area of expertise from Paul. If you can have a look at that, we'll come back to you in a second on it. But in the meantime, we're just going to put another poll up on the screen. This is to do with um, if your firm does need more cash, where are you likely to go for it? Where do you go You know, if you, if you need a cash input? So we'll just give you a few seconds to fill in that one and I'll do the same. And then we'll have the answers to that popping up in a mo. So 41% borrow from the bank, um, least popular appoint more partners to, to get the capital. Um, yeah, I think when you started to fill that one in, actually, you can only pick one. So um, yeah, the people who've picked all of the above may have wanted to uh, pick two or three and perhaps not all of them but yeah I mean borrowing from the bank I suppose it, it's uh, the interest rates are, are so low at the moment that's one of the reasons why. Um, James can we come back to you on that question that we've had just before we move on to the next section to do with have you picked up the one I'm talking yeah. about? <clears throat> yeah yeah so uh, the question from Paul Millet was um, am I right in understanding that the new tax changes brings forward tax payable in the following year so it's a short time one time that will have to be funded. So if, if we base it on how the, the consultation currently is with the deferral of 12 months, the, the impact on the cash flow and when the tax payment's going to hit will be around 31st of January, 2025. So this is the date that you need to have in mind. So it is a little way off. But as you as you can see, I mean, we've got you don't know what the profits is going to be in those years. But the impact of the changes are of bringing profits forward. You've got, and then it depends on the level of those profits brought forward versus your overlap relief to offset against those profits. So it would be a, a really a case of probably, like most likely, getting the calculator out and seeing what the impact is and also taking into account what the rates and tax will be at that time for the 2023-24 tax year for the transitional year. And once you've looked at that, then you can think about whether you want to take advantage of the election to spread that additional profit over five years and fund it that way. It's also worth thinking about if you're making contributions into your pension, the, the by bringing the profits forward and depend on the level of your overlap relief, it could have an effect on your annual allowance for the year. So as you might be aware, it's where your income goes above 240,000, your annual allowance of 40,000 is restricted by one pound for every two pounds you exceed the threshold until you get to 312,000, where the maximum you can contribute is 4,000 gross. This is of course, without taking into account unused allowances from the prior three years. So depending on personal circumstances, you might already be stretched for cash to make a tax payment, but a pension contribution could mitigate that, those tax payments, along with other tax reliefs such as gift aid or EIS investments. 
Okay, thanks, James. Um, Zulon, can we can we move to you? Um, we, on the poll that we looked at just now, one of the um, options was to ask the partners to pay in more capital, basically. But what needs to be built into a partnership deed to make that sort of decision easier or, or, or possible? Not just that sort of um, question, but you know, to make any sort of decision about paying money into the business possible. How can you allow for that in the partnership deed or help allow for it? Thanks, Claire. Um, as your kind of question implies, there are two aspects, aren't there, to that question. Firstly, do you have the ability to take certain decisions to react very quickly when you need to conserve cash or raise cash for the business? Um, and the second aspect of that is, can you do that in a very timely manner, um, in a way that's not overly cumbersome or difficult to achieve? Um, in terms of procedural requirements in your constitutional agreement, um, in terms of voting rights and timing of, of notices and thresholds for decision making, for example. So in terms of kind of the first aspect, in terms of having the actual ability to take certain decisions at a minimum to protect the firm in anticipation for these kind of um, shocks, shall we say, um, we would expect a firm's constitution to in include things like the ability to increase capital, um, the ability to borrow externally, um, and often you see that borrowing requirement kind of um, being triggered uh, above a certain threshold where a partner resolution might be required, um, the ability to conserve cash by retaining profit distributions or delaying profit distributions for um, working capital and other reasons. Um, and also, um, this is more kind of more extreme, but the ability to reduce fixed profit shares in some circumstances. Um, and also the on the other side of the coin where partners depart, again, it can have a, an effect on the firm's cash flow. So the ability to actually defer payments to retired partners, um, and sometimes you have good bad lever provisions in there as well for extended deferral to for people who have misbehaved, for example, um, and that can give the firm some headroom in terms of its uh, the cash flow requirement um, to pay out warm partners. In terms of the second aspect of decision making, um, the ability to make those kind of time critical decisions in a timely manner. Um, we always recommend that you look at your constitution every couple of years to ensure that it's it's still kind of fit for purpose All the decision making thresholds and voting rights um, procedural requirements are appropriate for your business, the size um, of your partnership, um, the way that your voting rights work, whether they're one partner, one vote, whether or, or they some kind of waiting vote, uh, voting um, uh, provisions, for example, weighted to points or or shares in the firm or, or the equity held by a partner, um, because firms evolve um, and you know grow grow smaller, grow bigger over a number of years. You just need to make sure that those voting thresholds uh, are still appropriate for your business, because what you don't want to have is certain decisions requiring a unanimous approval, for example, which is one of the you know, one, one thing I'm grappling with one particular part, um, firm at the moment where they have a unanim unanimity requirement for quite a large partnership and it's impossible to do anything. And same with other kind of very high thresholds like 80% requirement or 90% requirement. Um, that can again be quite very difficult to pass, especially if you have quite a small partnership. You can have one partner or a handful of partners holding the whole firm to um, hostage 
and that can seriously destabilize the firm, especially where you have some kind of cash crunch, which could happen in these kind of circumstances. So keeping those kind of things in your constitution under constant review is absolutely key. Thanks, Elon. Um, now, Rob, we're, we're all conditioned when we work in partnerships to, to see um, the pinnacle of our career as re reaching equity partner status. But I think we probably all also know partners in partnerships that we look after where certainly they don't want to become equity partners and they might be, you know, might prefer to stay a fixed share partner or some other form of partner. Can you perhaps comment on that? And I might bring Corinne in as well, because Corinne and I were emailing each other yesterday on a similar subject. So if, if Rob, if you could go and then we'll bring in Corinne, if that's OK. Well, yes, I mean, non-equity partners and fixed share partners really, in my opinion, uh, they originated as a function of chasing the league tables. Uh, so so uh, if, you, if you can't manipulate the, the drivers of profitability in the firm, uh, what you can do is redu reduce the number of equity partners and then your profit per equity partner miraculously goes up. So to a degree, it, 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 it's an artificial construct. Uh, again, in my opinion, uh, others might disagree with me. It, it can be a useful step to, uh, to, to equity partnership. It can, there are other reasons for it. But, but the, the fact is that, that we, we do have quite a lot of uh, non-equity partners now uh, who would prefer not to become partners because they don't want to take on this kind of risk. And... Uh, but they are taking on risk in, in any in any in any case. I beg your pardon, and um, and and they're demanding more and more say in the, in the, the way that the firm is run. So it's it's, it's begun, beginning to create a disconnect, I think, which is is difficult. But I, I think if I might just add, what needs to really happen, especially in the light of these developments, is, is the level of transparency across partnerships needs to go up. I mean the. You can't wait until 2024 to, to broach these issues. As, as I said earlier, what, what rights? Does a firm have a right to inquire after the financial affairs of its partners? Um, I know some partnerships pay their, their, the, um, the tax liability that accrues from the partnership over to HMRC on the partner's behalf. Uh, and, and that can manage certain risks, but it, it raises other risks if the firm doesn't have a clear view of what the, the partner's finances are like, you know, what, what sources of income they have. So it, it's complex, um, but it's certainly something that, 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 that needs to be discussed more than it is at the moment in, in, in firms. Oren, do you want to jump in? Yeah, of course. I think that sort of question of the sort of equity versus fixed share is a really interesting one. I would echo Rob's comments. Um, another observation I would make is that um, I think there's a big sort of cultural of question uh, around all this in terms of how the firm is so there are so, so, so to, to Rob's point about you know do you want to take on that responsibility what sort of partnership are you are you the type of partnership where you all pull together and you know somebody's in a tight spot so you all sort of help each other out or are you the type of culture where you're effectively you know a whole bunch of sole practitioners with your own practices and you happen to be practicing near one another you know what what, what are you culturally are you for example saying all of these sort of more junior partners are are destined for equity partnerships or, or are you saying well actually no there will be a chosen few that will go on to sort of enjoy riches beyond their wildest dreams and all the rest of you will support their success mm. you know and, and is that fair do, do you feel that your package your responsibilities your remuneration um are are um 
commensurate with with the you know do, do those equity partners with the kind of the bumper profit shares do they deserve that do they, and well, it's not an objective question it's a subjective question the people that are supporting that do they think that that's that's right um and and those sorts of questions so i think there's a sort of a really sort of interesting cultural question around how the firm operates you know what what, what that looks like and i mean there's some technical points there like you know if you do have a cohort of equity partners um are the same types of people always making equity partner? Is there unconscious bias? Is there discrimination at play? Are people going to allege those sorts of things? So there's some interesting questions there because I think that the um, statistics will show it's quite homogenous. Uh, sometimes the, the, the group of equity partners is a sort of a hangover. Hopefully that's changing. And then the last point I would make is, is, is to echo Rob's comments on transparency. I think that is going to be a really, really huge part, partly because the sort of the, the the generations that are coming through are so used to having information at their fingertips. I didn't grow up with the internet. Whereas if somebody wants to know something who's you know, 20 years younger than me, they're just used to saying, well, I'll find that out at a click of a button. You know, and that sort of fluency with information, the expectation that they have information about anything at any time, I think is going to be quite relevant. I think it is quite relevant because if you remember an LLP, you need to know what's going on. You can't say, I had no idea that we had no cash. Sorry, Mr. Insolvency Practitioner, you can't claw back my drawings. That, that probably won't wash. Um, so I think there's a basic level of information below which you can't go uh, in order to be an effective member in LLP, even a fixed share one. If I could just add another point, Claire, and that is, uh, you know, it's difficult to talk in, in, in current circumstances when most firms are doing so well about maybe not doing so well. And I don't want to forecast the future, but I do think that firms need to be thinking through the what-if scenarios. I recall um, well, more than a decade ago now, a firm uh, that, that ran into a situation where because of the, 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 the compensation system that applied to their non-salary partners, their non-equity partners and their senior associates, they were making more money than, uh, than, than, than the equity partners because in the contraction, uh, the drawings, uh, they, they, they of course stand at the back of the queue. So you need to watch and uh, to model what would happen if fees did contract by X. And uh, so I just add that. I think yeah, that's that right, Robin. I guess, the, sorry, Claire, but the question for me in that circumstance is, is, is that cohort of equity partners sanguine about it? And they say, well, that's fair because in the good years, I've had, I've had a big chunk of money or, or do they walk because, you know, that mm. they aren't prepared to get out of bed for less than X profit per point. Or they take the call from the headhunter that they wouldn't exactly. have taken otherwise. Yes, I think over the last, um, well, I was going to say 18 months, it might be a bit longer than that. We've certainly seen a number of firms where there's a, a tier of fixed share partners and a number of them have been offered equity um, you know, status in the firm. And some of them have said, why would I do that? I'm, mm. I'm more secure. I'm earning more as a fixed share partner. I'll stay where I am. Thank you. And it, and it comes as a bit of a surprise, I think, to, to the other equity partners. And at a time when cash flow is going to be um, stretched, um, you know, it's more important than ever that these conversations are had a bit sooner, I think. Um, I, 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 sorry, Claire, I was just going to yeah, jump in and say that's a massive succession problem because sometimes, you know, it, it requires people to come through to allow people to retire and sort of move on in, in the way that's expected. So obviously, if you don't have that pipeline or you have, you know, say 10 equity partners who want to retire and two people coming through, it just doesn't add up. No, absolutely doesn't. Now, we've been quite doom and gloom with some of this up to now, but we want to just turn uh, in the last sort of five minutes or so to planning steps that firms can take to prepare for all this doom and gloom. Um, I'm going to go to each of the 
panel members in turn and just just share your sort of key steps that that um, partnerships and partners can be thinking about now um well who should we go to first rob should we go to you first well, I just reiterate that point about thinking through the what-if scenarios, uh, planning it through, and planning through what happens if partner X leaves. Uh, how would we accommodate that uh, with their teams? Eh? And uh, and um, yeah, a bit doom and gloomish, but uh, you know, people plan the opposite as well. What what if we win that big um, that big mandate or, or secure a new client? So just be prudent about thinking what what the future holds. Great. Okay, James, let's move to you. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's going to be important, more important than ever for mapping future profit shares and how that's going to flow out to tax payments and where firms maintain tax reserves on behalf of partners that they are sufficiently reserved or whether they're going to need more cash or how they're going to deal with that shortfall in tax payments on in the transition year to hit in January 2025. Yeah, and if I can just jump in here, James, I think you and I see quite often that when firms do maintain tax reserves on behalf of the partners, in some cases, it's sort of put to the partner that we will take charge of this, we will reserve enough to, to pay your tax. But actually, well, James, you know better than I do that it's very difficult to do that because the firm and Rob, you were talking about this earlier as well, it's very difficult to know what the personal circumstances are of each of those, those partners. So we see fairly regularly partners who think that the money is in the firm when the tax demand comes along. And actually, it's not and, and that can be worse at the moment if you've got an April year end or, or a non 31st of March year end and you're retiring for example you carry on paying tax for an awfully long time after you retire and if the assumption is that that money's sitting in the firm's bank account well that assumption might be wrong so I think if I can put my own two pence worth in I think I would say be aware as a partner what your tax liability is because it is your tax liability and make sure that um, you know where that money is being is being held. Um, Corinne let, let's move on to you what would your planning suggestions be? Thank you Claire I, I, I'm going to seize on your encouragement not to focus on the doom and gloom <laughs> and uh, we, we read a survey you'll recall a while ago when, when we went into to the, the pandemic and we asked people how much cash they had going into the pandemic and literally at 23rd of, of March when the first lockdown started. And there were a few people who said less than, less than three months and most people are around about the four months mark. And then obviously a lot of firms did a lot of work around how to preserve cash. Uh, and then we we said that that same, we applied the same question as at, I think it was August time and, and it had shifted. So very few firms were in the sort of three month category. Most were above six months, some were over 12 months worth of cash. And I think what I took from that is, well, First of all, luckily, COVID wasn't as bad from a from a professional perspective for firms uh, as people thought it was. But the other one is we're resilient. Professional firms are resilient. They do plan. So you sort of use this, know it's coming, plan for it and actually build off it. Because um, I, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I think we can use it and maybe use that as an opportunity to change attitudes to the way that the firm is managed. Sort of move away from the I'll get all my money out all the time to a model where we say maybe we invest a bit more. Maybe actually I'll take 20% less profits this year. And what we'll do is we'll use that cash to upgrade the IT or, you know, invest in a new partner group, sort of really invest in our strategy. And, and maybe, and perhaps I'm being naive, but maybe firms will allow this to shift their perspective and, and, and sort of be a bit more um, long-term, sort of focus more on the long-term. Great. Thank you, Corinne. And Zulon. 
I'd probably carry on, on the theme that Rob, both Rob and Corin have mentioned in, in terms of long-term planning, fixing the roof while the sun's shining, really, um, and ensuring that, you know, uh, as I mentioned before, um, you know, constantly keeping your constitutional provisions under review and looking at them, even if you don't have any impending kind of issues coming up, um, because it's always worth being proactive in these things to ensure that you have the right tools in your governance to ensure that you can react very quickly and effectively when there does come a situation where you need to raise more money or, or you need to kind of conserve cash in the business. Lovely, thank you. And uh, we've got a few more minutes to go. I'm aware that we've got a couple of questions, which if, if it's okay with the audience members who've raised those, I'm going to ask whether James, I think they belong in James's area, uh, we can come back to you separately on these because I just want to go to final thoughts and then quickly, very quickly talk about the next, um, the next in our series of webinars. So with final thoughts and with a very positive spin on all this, um, there's gonna be a cash pinch coming up as we've talked about, but that will be over at some point and then, uh, once we're through the changes and back on an even keel again, um, what are the sort of positive thoughts that you can leave everybody with at the end of um, this quite depressing subject? <laughs> Who should we go to first? Corinne, go on, you go first. Thanks, Claire. Um, I think I would just remind everybody that change is always with us. And, and as the services industry, what, whichever part of the services industry you're in, um, change is good for us. If everything stayed the same, we'd never have any clients that needed any help. So I think we should remember that, that change represents both opportunity as well as challenge, and, and that applies internally as well as externally. Yes, and Lord knows we've been used to change over the last 18 months or so. Um, Zulon, how about you? I'd say um, it's probably a great opportunity to educate your partners. Um, it's surprising how Certainly partners at the more junior end or newly promoted partners are still unaware of exactly what their responsibilities are as a member of an LLP or partner in partnership. They are, they have to kind of, you kind of educate them as, as a firm um, that they are now owners of the business and they have certain responsibilities and potential liabilities at the end of the day if things go wrong. Um, so they need to take a, you know, active interest in how the firm is managed. And the firm, uh, and it also goes to the issue around transparency, transparency by the firm in terms of how the firm is doing from a financial perspective is also actually key to educating your partners about taking responsibility for the cash management of the firm. So I think taking that opportunity and educating, educating your partners is absolutely one of the key things that people should be doing. Great, thank you. And Rob? Yeah, just building on that, I think if I had a pound for every time a managing partner had said to me that they, they wished that they, uh, their, their, their partners would think more entrepreneurially and be more more like a business owner, I think I would do, uh, do rather well. And uh, this is an opportunity to to do that, it's, um, to, to get partners to really understand. This, this applies especially to, to larger firms, to mid-sized and large firms, because I think in, in small firms, the, uh, the, the partners have a lot more say on a day-to-day -day basis it's very easy in larger firms for them to feel like employees lovely thank you and james you've got 30 seconds because i need the other 30 seconds and for those who've who've um raised questions we will post some answers so we haven't forgotten about you right james over to you um thinking uh i think we always there's always change be plan for it so that and be proactive around the change and just remain sensible and forecast it. Yeah, 
plan and forecast yeah um right well thank you everybody thank you to our, our wonderful panel and to daniela in the background and to our lovely audience um i just want to uh, mention that on the 3rd of november that's the date to put in diaries same time as this one uh, we've got the next webinar coming up which will be to do with things that we learned in the pandemic now we're going to try and make this a, a well what do we call it corinne an interactive one we're going to try and do a, a combo of a webinar and a live in person everybody in a room together type thing so all we would say is we haven't sent out invitations yet but when we do if you do want to come to it either webinar or in person do sign up as soon as possible because then we can gauge how many people want to come in person and how many want to watch it virtually so that will be coming um and in the meantime thank you very much everybody and uh, see you at the next one